Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, this is Scott Martis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. Our guest today is Bruce Champagne. He's well known in the cryptozoology field. I first heard of his work around 1999-2000. Primarily known for going through sightings database of sea monsters and trying to categorize them based on the best sightings out there. Uh, I think he started with 12,878 or 87 sightings and then whittled that down to 351 if I'm correct. Hello Bruce, you there? I'm here. Good to talk to you, Scott. Yes, thank you for coming on. As I said, you've spoken at many cryptozoology conferences and have written articles that have been featured in several major prominent cryptozoology journals. Uh, were you ever published in the uh, ISC journal? Not the original one, I was not. Well, I know you've been in uh, Carl Schuker's Journal of Cryptozoology, and right. I, I think you've had an article in one of Lauren Coleman's journals too, right? In uh, his conference journal. I don't know if that's published yet, but there is an article submitted there on my talk. And you spoke last year at the Creature Weekend with that Bruce runs, right? I did. That was a good conference, too. I appreciated that. Yeah, I spoke at the one in 2017. Yeah, Bruce is a good guy. Yep, very well-connected guy, too. He had, a, he had to write a book or do some speaking on his own. Yeah. So you're, you primarily make your living in the field of security and law enforcement, correct? Yep, up until... Uh, June of last year, I actually was a police officer for about 20 years, and uh, it's a second career for me, but uh, that's what I used to make my living on. My father was a police officer for 36 years. I understand that. I remember you telling me that. Yeah, so I, I, I'm familiar with some of, the, some of the work that's involved in that. Yeah. Now, I'm sure that your investigative techniques, you brought some of that to cryptozoology, correct? Oh, absolutely. I use it all the time, uh, whether it's evaluating witnesses or or evidence or information. It, very applicable skills and really corresponds well to the, the scientific theory also. Yeah, or method. absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I watch a lot of true crime documentaries myself to try to hone my skills to make them better. Absolutely. <clears throat> because sometimes you look at something... And it appears to be one thing, in reality you find out it's something else. Yep, and it, it really helps you evaluate to get to that place, too. Some people maybe just stop right there. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the fascination with it, is applying the, the scientific method to it. Yeah, well, a lot of people, you know, are very critical of eyewitness testimony evidence and even in a normal situation, such as a criminal trial, you know, it comes under scrutiny. But when you had the added onerous of you're talking about something that people don't really know what it is, it's not generally accepted to exist, that adds another dimension to it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little bit more complicated than what people might think when you're when you're regarding witness testimony or deciding whether to accept it or not, there's actually should be a lot that goes beyond that to, to yeah. see whether that's a relevant or accurate testimony. Well, w one thing I find particularly persuasive is when you have multiple eyewitnesses describing the same event. Oh, absolutely. In fact, that was, uh, you mentioned in my intro, 
the number of uh, sea serpent reports I originally looked at. And, you know, obviously there's going to be, you know, human error regarding what they think they're looking at. Some will be deception. But there's all kinds of things that go into that. And so I actually tried to develop a criteria to whittle down those into usable uh, observations for data. I didn't want to include any data that uh, might inaccurately skew it. And one of them was, uh, well, actually a few of the criteria had to do with the actual witnesses. Some of them being whether or not there were multiple witnesses to an observation and, and the type of witness that that actually was reporting the, the observation. Yeah. You have maybe a handful of sightings that have actually come from marine explorers. Things like the Valhalla Sea Serpent, and there was uh, some kind of a transparent sea serpent-like creature that was seen off New Jersey in 1963 by a group of marine biologists. Absolutely. And those actually would provide a little bit more credibility to an observation. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they were scored accordingly. And, and that would certainly help uh, include that that report into the data set. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you know Gary Mangiacopa, right? Yep. Well, he's a, he, early on, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's a really good friend of mine, too. We've, we've known each other for going on a quarter of a century. Anyway, he was there actually able to track down some of the sailors that were on board the Santa Clara in 1947 when it collided with the animal that it collided with. Uh, And he was able to interview them. So, yeah, those are the type of eyewitnesses that I particularly find impressive. I do, too. I do, too. So, um, can we go into your different uh, sea serpent types, if you want to explain those? Sure. Um as I was going through, and this whole study started probably in the mid-1990s is when I began to to research the subject. I, my undergraduate degree is in marine biology, and previous to my law enforcement career, I was uh, a commercial uh, marine biologist, worked in aquaculture and in, uh, for animal importer exporters, both fish and reptiles. So... I had exposure to thousands of different species very close and uh, with thousands of different individuals. And that's what I was doing at the time I started doing this research. Part of my undergraduate work was assisting in a great white shark attack study off the coast of California. So I gained a little bit of experience there on uh, what is required uh, and how accurate you can be in watching an event at the surface of the ocean uh, that could be very brief, but involved uh, fairly large animals, basically white sharks attacking seals and sea lions. Would this be in the area that they call the Red Triangle? It is. This was off the Farallon Islands, which is roughly 30 miles uh, west of San Francisco Bay. And in the fall of every year, these animals, the white sharks, would come to the islands, which are actually fairly small, where the seals and sea lions were pupping and breeding, and they'd exploit that that food resource there. And the white shark could be there in a pretty good density back during that time. And so what we would do would be uh, climb to the top of this lighthouse right in the middle of the island, and from there we could see a good part of the shoreline all the way around the island. And we would videotape and position any attacks that happened. And... Sometimes you could get as many as four a day. And so we got pretty good experience there. And then after the fall and winter, we take the videotapes and data back to the lab and begin to organize and interpret that data. So that's what I was doing at the time that I first uh, began looking into the serpents. I was living in California, diving regularly off uh, many of the shorelines and islands. Well, I know. I know from... From my own research, there's been a long history of sea serpent sightings around Stinson Beach yep. and San Francisco Bay there. Yeah, the construction workers. Uh, the Clark brothers. 
Yep, I've done a little work with the Clark brothers. There's actually uh, some other sightings there that, that are less common that people knew about. So I, I had some understanding that something was going on there. And so I began to review any of the sources that I could get uh, and begin to sort them for different characteristics of animals and the environments they were in. Uh, and it became apparent that some of the animal type uh, combined characteristics uh, and they began to separate them out into animals that I thought maybe would be represented represented by one animal <coughs> as opposed to separating them out into multiple types. That became early on, and that's when I began to separate them into types how much, by characteristics. How much were you influenced by the scheme of Bernard Hubelmans? Uh, fairly significantly in the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, he had what I would consider the original data set. Gary Mangiacopra had done tremendous work in the beginning. In fact, I think he's underrepresented when we talk about uh, serpents and things like that. But well, you know his uh, thesis on sea serpents and lake monsters. I helped him on that. Did you? Yeah, yeah you absolutely. That. He provided that to me, and that's actually... Yeah, I have helpful. it too. Great piece of work. Uh, and, that, and that's why I think he's underreported. He'd always used the scientific method, and he did great work very early on. Absolutely. I, uh, met, I met Gary. I was looking into the Man Hill Monster the basking shark carcass that washed up back in 1970 in Massachusetts. And I was looking for information, and I asked Richard Greenwell about it, and he told me to get in touch with Gary, and that was probably 1995. Yeah. And we've been great friends ever since. Yeah, great guy. Yep, absolutely. Well, I noticed, uh, you know, I had read Bernard Hubelman's In the Wake of Sea Serpents as a as a kid, and so I, I defaulted to that and began to read it. It had been, you know, at least 30 years since that data set had been updated, so I began with that one, and early on I began to see uh, with some of the other information that I had that potentially Dr. Hubelmans had separated out the characteristics of certain animals into different types, whether or not it was his yellow belly and multiple bend and his long neck, things like that, merhorse. Yeah. So that's when uh, I began to separate him out, but I also gained a pretty significant appreciation for him with all the, the work he did without uh, the benefit of the Internet and some of these other real-time Well, yeah, he spent a uh, decade working on that book. It was just amazing yeah. work. Tremendous work. And yeah. so it's kind of an update or an extension to to that data set. He had the most extensive data set at that time. Well, so he, he did influence the work uh, in the very beginning. Your two long neck types, I notice, they're kind of a throwback to Odeman's model. They have the long tail. They do. Do you want With to elaborate the, on that? Sure. The Magophius. He, uh, yes. It, it's certainly a reported uh, serpent type. It, it was roughly about 12% of all of uh, my data set. Certainly not the most prominent or frequently reported, but, uh, you know, it's the most common, and that's what we kind of think about when we think sea serpent. And so uh, I call it a, a type 1 long neck, just a very generic reference. And then as I began to get into it a little bit deeper, I began to see some differences in, uh, though they had the general body plan, and some differences in their morphology and also their behavior. And so it actually wasn't planned, but I was required to separate them out. And so I ended up with a type 1A and a type 1B. Now your type, your type 1A is, is probably what's behind the Loch Ness Monster and possibly Champ too. your Long Neck Lake Monster is what you think, right? Uh, I actually think it would be my Type 3, but the Type 1 can't be ruled out. Um, and it's for, for different reasons. Um, the characteristics that are seen in the lakes um, more closely align with a different type of body, different type of body plan. Uh, 
certainly they're they're just theories at this point. That's why I published them is to test them. Uh, but the the type one A, I noticed its head was similar in diameter diameter to its neck. Um, and to I where to, to where it looks like a tube rather than a distinct head. Right, right, and uh, they they kind of have an interesting behavior too. I noticed uh, they were really only observed off the British Isles, but oftentimes they were breaching completely clear of the water. And when they did that, they only did that uh, when it was a series of three. So I thought that was very interesting. But uh, I did a classification matrix with, you know, uh, the different zoological components and classifications and it actually scores very close to, uh, well, it scored between a plesiosaur and a primitive mammal. And so I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards some type of an eared seal, an odorid. Uh, uh-huh. A fur seal or a sea lion type animal? Yeah, more of a, a sea lion. And, you know, it, it certainly needs to be tested. And yeah. certainly, it's only as good as the data that I had. Well, there's really good evidence now that plesiosaurs were warm-blooded. Right. Yeah, a lot of so. those, uh, those primitive mammals. Uh, and then uh, type 1B, I noticed, had a head that typically was larger in diameter to the neck. Uh, the mouth was a little more subterminal than uh-huh. the mouth of the 1A. Uh, it was counter-shaded, and... It, the interesting thing I thought about uh, these animals is 60% of the time they were observed uh, in the presence of cetaceans, small whales and porpoises and things like that. And well, now, appear to be I, noticed, on them. I noticed that you've got your larger long neck seen off Denmark. Do you think this is Pontopidan's classic sea serpent that he was talking uh, about coming out of caves and attacking yeah, animals? Again, I don't think so. Uh, that's what my latest study in Carl Schuker's journal was. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out where this particular animal places because it was the second most common uh, in the data set. Uh, and so, you know, these animals also spend a little bit more time at the surface than the 1A does. Mm-hmm. And so I'm still a little undecided there. I think this is also probably a primitive mammal. I don't know whether uh, they are related to the 1A, that, that it would be the same species or not. I just don't have enough good information. Based on your models, it would look to me like they would be at least somewhat closely related because the morphology is so similar. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, I just don't have the, the data to support it and and certainly I've separated them out with some unique characteristics that might just be differences in, in sex and maturity also. Now, your your second type of uh, fin sea serpent, do you believe that's what the Valhalla scientists saw? The mini fin? Well, there's one that's got a sail fin on its back. You've got a couple of types. One is a right. B12, but the other one looks kind of like your multi-hump sea serpent. But has a sail on its back. Yeah, that, the sail fin is the type 4. And that particular one that I attribute to the Valhalla is what I call a 4B. Uh, it actually uses that sail-like dorsal fin to scull the water uh-huh. uh, as it moves. Sort of and like a boat fin. Similar, right. Yeah. And uh, the Valhalla would maybe fall, fall under that. Uh-huh. And now your multi-humped is what you believe the Naden Harbor carcass was. Yeah, this is uh, the most common type that uh, we reported. Basically, 29% of everything fell under the multiple hump. And by definition, that was anything that displayed two or more humps. Where I think Dr. Hubelman's and others uh, maybe combined types is with the, the periscope behavior that the long neck has, but that also the multiple humped animal has, mm. where they lift the neck and head completely 
free of the water. Uh, and so they're attributing maybe this behavior to the single long-necked animal because a long-necked is displayed. But the type 3 multiple-humped animal also does that, and it has, obviously, it displays multiple humps. Now, do you believe do you believe that the animal seen by the Clark brothers is the same creature as yes. Cadborosaurus? Yeah, I was yes. kind of under the impression of that too. And, now, uh, the to Clark me, brothers actually, when I proposed that to them, they disagree with me. They huh. do not believe it's the type three animal. At least they didn't when I initially discussed it. Yeah. Well, um, a lot of people seem to be uh, inclined to think that that animal. Is some kind of relic bacillosaurine cetacean. But the big problem with that is that all that we know about whale evolution has gone against the evolution of a long neck. So, you know, Bousfield had this idea that it was some sort of mutated plesiosaur-like animal that had radically changed its body morphology and lost the back flippers and evolved a completely new type of locomotor morphology. What do you think about that idea? I agree in part. Uh, well, I'm not sure if it's a plesiosaurid. I do suggest that it is reptilian. Uh, well, another idea they explored was the idea it might be some kind of Metriorhynchid crocodile that had evolved in some weird direction. That's possible too. Uh, yeah, I, I could probably only go as far as that it's reptilian, but I do agree with the adaptation for the locomotion, and I think that's what distinguishes me from some of the researchers who have uh, either a convergent plesiosaurid or or a relic plesiosaurid proposal. Uh, for me, the locomotion is not only present in the water, which displays the multiple humps, but the land sightings also, and also the shallow water sightings. Uh, One thing I agreed with Bousfield on was his idea that the Ogopogos are landlocked caddies, or are caddies would, that, yeah, that come in and out of too. Okanagan Lake and go back to sea, which is, you know, not impossible, but you get all those dams on the Columbia, so... You know, I don't know. Well, that's where the locomotion comes in and where my most recent paper, uh, when I began to go over the sea serpent types, and and I, I fully understand that probably some of these types never existed, or if they did at one time, they don't now, uh -huh. or that they've been discovered as known animals now. Um, but it became apparent to me that there, there was some kind of connection between the freshwater animals and the sea serpent types. And, I, and I'm not the only one to suggest that. Uh, LeBlanc and Boosfield and Carl yeah. Schuker, they've all previously suggested that. Roy Mackle even suggested it yeah. back in the 80s. And so I actually think the type 3, and it's what my most recent paper is on, is actually the source of most of the freshwater uh Lake serpents are also, and uh, their their form of locomotion is what allows that. Uh, this vertical undulation, which I'm I'm trying to study to try and understand the effectiveness of, of moving that way, uh, really works in shallow to no water. Uh -huh. Kind of think of it as, as, as a sideways thing. snake sort of. Well, not even, not even that. They still can move uh, in a vertical plane, but they use that heavily plated tail as an anchor point that they can push off. Maybe visualize an inchworm, how an inchworm moves. So you, you, you believe, you agree with Bowser and LeBlanc that what you see in the Aden Harbor carcass, that what looks like whale flukes, are a set of back flippers that have moved far to the rear. Yep, I'm, I'm not quite sure what they are, but I noticed the heavy plating on the dorsal surface. Yeah. Uh, the tail appears to be rayed, and I, I talked to Dr. LeBlanc about it, uh, 
we started talking probably early 2001, and I actually met him at one of the international conferences uh, that Lauren Coleman did, and, and we spoke about it. Um, and he was never aware of some of the sightings that I discovered that really uh, referenced the tale. The tale is very unique. And, well, I remember uh, you speaking to me one time about the idea that it might be able to make a noise, kind of like right. a rattlesnake's rattle. And that and, might uh, be responsible for some of these echolocation-like sounds. Could be. And you would know better than that. I haven't done much echolocation work. But uh, well, the I sounds... some of the observations by Dr. LeBlanc. Yeah. He was, he was not familiar with them, but they predated uh, the publication of the Naden Harbor carcass photo, and they actually predated when that animal was collected and photographed. And yeah. Very interesting... Uh, observations on the plated aspect of the tail. I mean, it was described like a shrimp's or a lobster's. Yep, yep. Uh, and if you think about the telson of a crustacean, yeah. it's actually pretty accurate when you compare the two. Uh, you can look uh, at the scoots on the back of a sturgeon and see some similarity as yep. to far the pattern is, you know. And um, if you, you think about how, you know, a crustacean's tail can be extended and contracted, uh, it really kind of fits in with this. It's a consistent description. If you hadn't seen an animal like this, you'd probably describe it with something that you were aware of, like a shrimp or a lobster. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, the tail described by uh, Hagelin on the baby thing right. that he caught was similar, too. Yep, and uh, that struck me. And then, you know, the the vibration of the tail goes back... The earliest that I can find reports in 1817, and uh, where the tail was perceived as vibrating, and then early 1900s, you know, there are people reporting that the tail rattled or it even sounded like a gatling gun, and uh, even the the Lake Storjan uh, monster has reported that it, its tail makes a rattling sound. Well, the sounds that Wiz recorded in 2003, you know, I was there with her in 2009 getting new ones that yep. we wrote about in the abstract, and it's still, we still haven't explained what they are, how they're made. So, yeah, yeah it's possible. I found that curious when I saw your work on that and wondered how, if there, if there might be any, any association with that. Well, one interesting thing, did you see the... Small Town Monsters on the Trail of Champ documentary? I did. Well, Will and I went over to where the Bodette video was filmed during the making of that, and we recorded some new echolocation-like clicks that sound like what Liz recorded in 2003 and what we were recording in 2009. So we, may have, we may have some new ones. Very interesting. They were uh, very faint, but that's what they sounded like, and they're in the documentary. Well, I think that, you know, that bears further examination. Absolutely. It's a pretty distinctive characteristic this animal has that I'm assuming comes from that heavily plated tail. So, yeah. you know, the tail plays into this locomotion, not only provides uh, the locomotion for in the water, but also uh, this almost like inchworm type of locomotion when it's in very low water. Yeah. So marshlands and things like that, or even even overland. If you read some of the overland uh, reports in Loch Ness and other places and how it's described, it certainly uh, is consistent there. And and with some of the legendary monsters too. Uh, yeah. You know, these animals or something similar uh, have been reported in marshes in Greece. And other places, uh, and I always thought it was kind of interesting because they were uh, attributed to maybe being the source of floods. That when they moved about through these marshes, they caused floods. And, and you're probably familiar too with some of the the Irish uh, accounts of animals being stuck in culverts. Some get out. Some, yeah, uh, yeah. There was one. One got stuck in a in a mill somewhere in a, in a wheel. Yep. I think it's from Ted Holliday's book. Uh, 
The Dragon and the Disc, I read about this. Yeah. So And they I left know. the body. They couldn't get it out, so they just had to leave the body there until it dissolved away. Yeah, and there's, there's more than one story of that. So yeah. I always kind of thought, well, what if these animals aren't a warning or create floods, but what if they like to move about when the water gets a little higher? Well, uh, one th- I was looking into that, and uh, apparently the West African manatee moves inland when, when there's a flood. They use it to move further inland, so maybe that's sort of what's going right. on. Makes sense, right? That, yeah, and, and so you also had these giant Ice Age floods, which I've spoken to you about before, uh, that flooded all the way from Montana to the Columbia River. So during a period of flooding like that, it's possible these animals could come in following fish that happen to be swimming in that are confused by this flood, you know? And that's kind of the premise of my thoughts right now. It uh-huh. is, uh, and, I, and I'm trying to study the animal by river drainage now. Yeah. Uh, now, what if, what if these animals are most active and they move between bodies of water or move inland during periods of high water? And for them yeah. to have to do that, they would have to have a body plan and a, obviously a, a means of locomotion that would support that. Yeah. And for me, it was more closely aligned with how the type 3 animal moves. It would also be handy if the animal wanted to crawl around an obstruction like a dam or a canal or something, too. Exactly. exactly. In the dark because, of night, you know? So Because it kind of answers a question about obstructions and things like that, which, you know, that that's, a, that's an important argument, but if you had an animal that could negotiate uh, some of these obstructions, particularly during periods of high water, then that might open up the possibilities. And so that's yeah. that's what I addressed most recently with this Type 3 animal. One thing I've been exceedingly curious about is this digited creature that yeah. you come up with. What, what sightings are those based on? There's about five. Uh, it's not a very common, uh, not a very commonly sighted animal. In fact, uh, the last time it was sighted, I think, it was 1995, and it's really only sighted oh, about every 40 years. So it's not uh, it's not something that you're you're likely to see. But I noticed when they are sighted. Um, it's typically in areas that have uh, kelp. Uh, Maybe like the Sargasso Sea, areas like that. Yeah, I've, I've noticed with these, they tend to be not necessarily free-swimming or uh, floating kelp, but those that have the holdfasts. Uh, and so they're not, a, they're not a very large animal. And mostly they're found by carcasses. Would this and, be like uh, the Canvey Island carcass? Canvey Island would be like it. The Canvey Island carcass didn't score high enough to be included into the final data set. Uh, but it would be similar to it. And I based this particular type off, it had four limbs and basically the hands or feet had opposable digits, typically two versus three. So you can kind of maybe think, uh, you know, arboreal species like chameleons and koala bears. Well, that's what I was going to say is the the illustration I saw reminded me of a chameleon. Right. Do you have any idea about what kind of animal you think it could be? It scored... Uh, between an amphibian and a modern reptile when I did a classification examination on it. I'm not really sure what it would be. I lean well, most people are not towards reptile. Most people are not aware, but there were marine amphibians way back. Sure. Yeah, so uh, you, know, uh, you never know. So there, there just really isn't enough sightings with that one. That's just what the data suggests right now. It would certainly be a great opportunity to, to find another carcass or, or discover one. Yeah. So, uh, 
my proposal is that perhaps it it moves through these kelp forests with that type hand. Well, I, very slow moving, and they don't necessarily get very large, or they would be more subject to predation. Probably in Peru, they have found an aquatic ground sloth called Thalassocnus from the uh, Miocene period. So that's something along the lines. Sure. So you never know. It maybe it could be a weird aquatic sloth we don't know about. Yeah, I don't really know. I don't have enough observations that there were enough that scored that it had to be included into the the data set, but it only comprised about 1% of all of the observations, so they yeah. weren't very common. Now, um, <clears throat> I notice you've got a couple of your sea serpents that are B12s. Now, do you think that some of the B12s that have been discovered in recent years may actually be one of your sea serpents? Tell me what the, the B12 is that you're talking about. Let's see. All right. One is the self end Sea Serpent A, a 30 to 70 foot B12. Okay. Yeah. And then the other one, let's see. i got to find it here. Um, let me see. The ill-like sea serpent B, a 25 to 30 foot B12, is distinguished by a tapering head and a dorsal crest. Motor budding behavior engaged in inhabits the Atlantic and Pacific, possibly extinct. Yeah, that's my type 4A sail fin. Uh, that one actually was seen with, with blowholes uh, and had a triangular dorsal fin. I do think... Um, Possibly it's a new species of cetacean, but it, it may have been discovered since then also, since uh, the most recent observation I had with this type at the time was in 1912. So perhaps some of these new zippets that are being discovered might be this particular animal. They're still finding them, so that gives us a lot of hope oh, yeah. that there's all kinds of weird things out there that we don't know about yet. Absolutely. I'm sure you're familiar with Charles Paxson's work. I think you've even cited it. Right. In some of your papers. Yep, and his, uh, his estimates of large, large animals yet to be discovered and classified. He's been doing a lot of work lately on the Loch Ness Monster with Adrian Shine, trying to That's classify right. the, the Nessie sightings, break them down into categories. And I think that would be helpful, too. I always, you know, appreciate that type of research. It's a little easier to test and, and evaluate that way. Yeah. So he does good work. I appreciate what he does also. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> what do you think the Santa Clara Sea Serpent was? I'm not really... Sure. Most often, uh, I've found they, they maybe initially be reported as a long neck, but I'm finding that a good deal of them, when, when you're able to get into the sighting a little bit more, tend to fall into the type three serpent description. So it's very possible. That might be what we're looking at there. Yeah, well, your type 3 sea serpent has a long neck, too, so. Yeah, that's why. That's you know, the I ambiguous part is the long neck, you know. And uh, so I certainly understand the, the confusion sometimes with it, but that's kind of where I lean on that one so far. Let's talk about your turtle creature. It, um... Is potentially the carapace on this is most often reported jointed and segmented uh, as opposed to continuous like the like a turtle it's certainly possible if you know a lens would have allowed it also it, it tends to be a, a reptile like well if mammal. You, you look at if you look at the leatherback it doesn't really have a conventional carapace so yeah. it's possible something else could be out there and, and like I was talking to you the other day in a Facebook message, I mentioned the uh, 
placodonts, which right. were cousins of the plesiosaurs and weren't turtles, but they evolved very similar armor to turtles through convergence. Absolutely. It would it would be a great strategy in that way, and so the the my carapace animal almost is more similar to that than a turtle, but I certainly wouldn't rule that out. Uh, like I said, it's only only as good as the observations, uh, and there's certainly uh, not as many as I would have liked there either. Uh, I think there were maybe nine of them total uh-huh. that would fall into that, and that that certainly can be difficult to... Would you include the Moha Moha in that? Yes, it is. Uh, that's I, this, When I was reading your description, I was thinking, boy, that sounds like the Moa Moa. Yep, that that was uh, included in there. Um, I know when I was doing a little traveling last year in Australia and other places, it's generally thought uh, that that might have been a hoax. Uh, so... It's included in the data set, but certainly you have to keep that in the back of your mind that it, you know, the data that you get from there might have skewed it somewhat. Well, I but know that I know that, that Hubelmans thought it was a hoax, but the other people do not think that it was. So yeah. it's one of those, you know, ambiguous. One thing I was curious about is why don't you think that any of your ill-like serpents may just be weird fish? Um, basically from behavior, uh, and their capabilities, they don't have, a lot of them don't have the capabilities or greater capabilities than a fish would that they demonstrate. Um, certainly they could be just from the data that I have that allows me to, and other people hopefully to falsify the data set too. There's nothing that would suggest that they are a fish. So what what kind of reptile do you think your eel-like sea serpent might be? The eel-like sea serpent C? Right. Elongated the, uh, reptile with no appendages? Sure. That, um, it scores between modern reptiles and primitive mammals on a classification index. Uh, so I'm not really sure where that lies. So it's conceivable it could be an archaeocete of some kind. Sure. Yeah. Sure, it could be. And, you know, with those particular observations that are associated with that, it was oftentimes seen motorboating, which is a cetacean behavior. Well, there's actually actually a prehistoric whale called Jangucetus. It was a tooth mysticetti. And it had a head that's been described as looking like a crab eater cell. Sure. With teeth like one, too, so maybe that's a potential answer. Certainly could be. They haven't been seen for quite some time, I think, since yeah, it's 1934. Possibly so. extinct, so. Yeah. And, and not very common and doesn't lend itself to a significant amount of date, anyway. Do you think your. Uh, Reptilian sea monster could possibly be a, a, an extant mosasaur. Oh, the saurian. Yeah. Um, not sure if it's a mosasaur. That was certainly a very successful body plan. So, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be surprised that other animals, marine animals, would would use that body plan also. Um, it certainly scores like a mosasaur uh, on a classification index. Well, now they're saying that mosasaurs were warm-blooded, too. Yeah, we're finding out a whole lot of things, and I know you shared a lot of information with me like that on the the capabilities of these primitive or prehistoric marine reptiles. We're learning a whole lot more than... than Well, yeah. Well, just now, recently, I don't know if I told you about this, they found scales on plesiosaurs. They Uh, didn't think... Yeah, they didn't think they had scales until recently. They found a exceptionally preserved plyosaur in Mexico that had preserved blubber and scales. Very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, so they had reduced scales somewhat like what you see on mosasaurs. 
that if you didn't get, you know, unless you got right up close to it, you wouldn't really notice the scales. They're so small. But yeah. they apparently did have scales. And they found blubber on uh, ichthyosaurs, too, quite yeah, recently. These, are, these all, you know, open up important considerations in that we, we tend to limit the ranges and capabilities of these marine and, and freshwater serpents by by what we view their their body as or or we even project things that they can that they supposedly do but there's no body plan or morphology to support that it kind of works both ways but i think with these recent discoveries that's going to open up uh, the conversation a little bit more on yeah and what these animals could be and where they can be found one thing you have to think about too is when you're dealing with large fossil tetrapods you're talking about animals that may have are believed to have been extinct for sometimes 30 to 65, 66 million years. And if they have managed to survive, God knows what those additional millions of years of evolution have done to them. Exactly. To change them from the fossil forms that, that we know about, you know? Exactly. So, is there anything you want to add? One of your types that we didn't go over? or? Uh... Well, I think the... The type three pairs, and I'm hoping other researchers will get involved and examine it a little bit more, a little bit more closely, uh, because that animal is global in distribution that I can find. And then when I was going over the marine research, uh, that animal continually presented itself uh, in observations really far inland, and in fresh water, uh, and I knew back then doing the marine research that uh, it probably should be addressed on any association or connection to the freshwater. And well, so, you never know what's going to happen. I don't know if you heard about this, but February or last year, a dead leatherback was found in a brackish lake in Nova Scotia. I did hear about that. Yeah, so that's that. very interesting, you know. And uh, and so I think we need to look a little more closely at this particular animal. I proposed, as far as its freshwater form, that there's you know a migratory form or variant, and a transient variant, and a residential variant, and it could potentially uh, be a good research base for some of the lake monsters. Well, I'll bear that in mind when I'm at Lake Champlain. I, I'd appreciate it if you would. And it's, and Absolutely. You know, particularly look at marshes and things like that. Uh, in fact, I'm hopeful maybe one day you and I can go out there together on nice. your expedition. I'll be there in August and half of September, so I'm going to be there for six weeks coming up soon. So. No, I'd love to join you one time. And, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of what I've developed and tried to put into print and, and in these journals is this data set so other researchers would test it. And well, you know, I made pretty conclusive statements where, you know, some of the criticisms might be, well, that's kind of presumptuous of you to say that. But then that means it's really easy, easily falsifiable Yeah. With, a, with an observation because they don't happen very often and they're not very long, but if you could get some data and you can say, okay, well, that, that wasn't correct. Or, yeah, maybe, then it advances the data set. Absolutely. And, you know, the long game of this, why I did this, was uh, to try and be in the right place at the right time with the right method and equipment to collect these animals. Yeah. Or uh, categorize them in some way. Well, Rather I've got... Than approaching at haphazard, that's... I've got biopsy darts that I'm going to have handy at Lake Champlain, and I had them back in 2017, too, so. I know when I heard that you did that, I thought, oh, that's, that's awesome. That's very, uh, that's very forward thinking, because I think a lot of people do that. Well, most people don't realize it, but those darts, which they regularly use in shark and whale research now, were invented by Roy Mackle to try to get a nasty tissue sample. So if it wasn't for Roy Mackle, they wouldn't exist. Didn't know that. But yeah, that's a when, fact. When you were planning to do that, that I thought that was an excellent idea. Yeah, and, and it's... It would really advance the whole... It's harmless whole to the animal, 
And I don't think myself that just one piece of tissue would qualify as a type specimen. But if we were able to have a tissue sample and a set of bones of a recently dead one, and the DNA matched on both the bones and the tissue sample, I think that would qualify as a, as a type specimen. It would be sure. enough to get sure, it in it the might size. might go a long way towards that, that's for sure. Yeah, so we're going to be looking for bones of recently dead ones, too, in caves, and on the bottom if we can find them. So. Well, keep thinking about marshes. That's yep. They keep sticking out in my, in my head. Well, there's uh, some big ones around. There's one in, around Otter Creek. There's one at the mouth of the Winooski River, which I'm very familiar with. So, yeah, I'll do that. And I'd love to join you sometime. Well, Maybe next year. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, I guess if you want, we can wrap this up, and thank you for coming on the show. Oh, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you very much, Bruce. You bet. Take care, Scott. You too. Bye-bye. Good night. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis.